0: This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you, Paul?
1: I'm doing great. And speaking of English, I'm doing this podcast from England, where I got my first
0: vaccination on March 16th. Ah, you're a lucky man. I'm yet to have a vaccination. But that is definitely in the air. There's a bit more optimism, a commodity that hasn't spread to Myanmar, of course, where I'll be turning for our first segment. What would you be looking at? I'll be looking at
1: Taiwan, which is one of those places on Earth which has reason for optimism about conquering the coronavirus because they've done quite well. And normalcy has returned to the streets of Taiwan for the most part.
0: Okay, that's good. But you'll be looking into other themes as well about its relationship with China.
1: Well, yes, the headlines are dominated with the ominous threats to Taiwan from China that seem even more ominous now that China has essentially digested Hong Kong politically. But the people on in Taiwan sort of just shrug it off.
0: Yeah, so we'll get a bit of a reality check from you and Nadia Cao from our Mandarin service. But first, we turn to Myanmar. Just a week or so ago, it seemed hard to conceive how the situation in Myanmar could get much worse. Dozens had already died as the military used weapons of war to suppress protests against its February the first coup. But get worse, it did. Security forces gunned down more than 40 people in a single day in an industrial district of Yangon, where two Chinese garment factories were set on fire. Since then, the military has only tightened its vice over the city and other parts of the country. The Tatmadaw and other security forces under its control have betrayed all basic norms of military conduct. To reflect on these tragic events, I'm joined by RFA Burmese Senior Editor, Jor Tun. Welcome, Jor Thank
2: you very much for having me.
0: Okay, glad you're here on march the 14th we saw the most brutal violence yet since the coup in the township of langtai in yangon an industrial district can you describe what happened on that day
2: yes it was on sunday the local residents and lanta held mass protests and authorities are trying to creep down with heavy use of force and at least 40 people in some reports to say 50 people were killed and, and unknown numbers of people were injured and arrested in the same day which was later dubbed the bloodiest sunday in the afternoon, the uh, two Chinese factories in Lai Daya were attacked by arson and uh, by unknown groups of people, where some Chinese nationals from those factories were reportedly injured too. After the incident, Chinese ambassador in Myanmar issued a statement calling to take effective uh, measure to stop all acts of violence, to bring the perpetrators to justice, and to ensure the safety of the Chinese nationals and Chinese businesses in Burma. So on that evening, the uh, military's ruling council authorized the regional commander in Yangon to designate martial law in Lai Daya and Shui Bida, the both the industry as well, next to each other, where Chinese factories were located.
0: Okay, so I think now the junta has declared martial law in several more townships in the city. What extra powers does that give to the military?
2: Uh, Martial law gave the uh, security forces, the police and the military troops, were authorized to shoot any suspected hostile objects, which in this case were anti-coup protesters. And it can also shoot and disparate any number of people on the street as well. That township in that area where most of the uh, migrant workers from across the country come and live, So people are very insecure and a lot of citizen journalists' footage show that people are arrested and beatings there too. Residents also claim that unknown numbers of dead people are destroyed as well.
0: It's so difficult for hospitals to get to all of those who've been injured or killed. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about just how many people died in that incident. But now it seems that People have been fleeing that area. Is that correct?
2: People are very scared and they're trying to escape the place. And most of the migrants are going back home too. So they are in this other area now.
0: Okay. Now, I've heard that in some areas of the city, Langtaro included, security forces have been going from door to door. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned on what life is like in those areas that are now under martial law?
2: Yes, residents said the military and the police trying to clear any protesters in any given area by checking street by street. And when they tried to arrest the suspected protester, they went from door to door, knocking down the barriers and arresting anyone they found. When they cut down the protests or any gathering, they used uh, live ammunition. They also used baton for beatings to civilians on the streets, arresting anyone even. In their own house. Residents and activists share video footage or the crackdown on these areas uh, to us saying that treatments to civilians as enemy combatants and the area has been begun the better fee. They were very insecure and unsafe even in their own house. Uh, they began suspected each other as well, whether someone was listening what they are talking or being informed to the police, etc.
0: I mean, some of the citizen journalist video that we've seen in recent days is is haunting. There was one video today that showed one young man being forced to crawl along the street at gunpoint by one member of the security forces, which was just appalling. So in this kind of situation, it's clear that the crackdown and the use of lethal force has led to a reduction in the massive street protests that we saw in earlier weeks. But are people still protesting?
2: Yes, they are. But they adopted the situation. No longer make confrontation with the police like in the early days or the coup. Now they're trying to avoid them, avoid the major streets, held the uh, gorilla style protests. In some cases, they even... Held human uh, humanless protests in many cities where only anti-coup banners and posters were erected on the streets instead of real people. But in many cities, including several parts of the Yangon, uh, Mendeley, and Moyo, where many protesters were killed in previous days, they stayed marching on the streets, held sit-in strike as well as bikers released on the street. So they are still protesting on the street, even though brought the down Like more than two hundred people already killed in like forty or fifty days period.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable the bravery that people have been showing. Can you also tell me about the steps that the military has taken to restrict access to the internet? You know, since the start of the coup, there've been restrictions imposed on social media, like access to Facebook. And I know that there's, there's been periodic shutoffs of the internet, but it seems like this has intensified in the last couple of weeks. So what have you learned about that?
2: The Honda is trying to shut down the internet services several times. Later, it began a nightly procedures. They shut down all internet in the nighttime. Data services cut off from midnight to 9 a.m. in the morning. But now, as a latest move, the military orders data service providers to suspend all their services indefinitely, but people using any service available, including mobile SIM cards from Thailand, they share the videos and text message and a very limited window they got through the social media sites such as uh, Facebook and Twitter.
0: I see. So in this situation where it's increasingly hard for people to get online, and share information uh, and it's increasingly important for people to stay connected. What sort of challenges does this pose for news gathering, for organizations like RFA?
2: At this situation, it's very challenging. Right this moment, at least 39 journalists were arrested and at least 15 of them are facing serial criminal charges with defamation and sedition. Even today, March 19, BBC and MISIMA news reporters were arrested while attending court hearing of detained NLT leader in Naypyidaw. So being a reporter in Myanmar began increasingly challenging now. Reporters could not go to the public gatherings, protests without safety precautions. They have to move in a group from one place to another as a team. Now even they could be arrested or detained at daylight by plainclothes police it will be seriously difficult to report news in Myanmar. At the same time, due to internet restrictions, journalists were heavily relying on citizen journalists who provide the photos and uh, new tips and footage for the news. It is a really challenging situation right now, and it is certainly not good for the people of the country as well.
0: I mean, I think there's been a lot of bravery shown by journalists. There's also been a lot of bravery shown by regular citizens who are sharing the incidents that they see and that they record on their cell phones with organizations like RFA and, and other media groups. And I think we're going to be increasingly dependent on these people to keep us informed about what's happening inside the country. So John Mintun, I wanna thank you very much for sharing what you've learned about the situation in Myanmar.
2: Thank you very much, Matt, for having me.
0: Thank you, Matt and Joe
1: min Another grim reminder of the high cost of keeping a free press and the higher cost of losing one. My guest today will be Nadia Cao, a veteran Taiwan journalist who joined RFA in 2018 after a 20-year career as Washington correspondent for Taiwan's Liberty Times newspaper. Nadia returned to her native Taiwan for a family visit earlier this year, enjoying post-pandemic near-normalcy in a place that won some of the highest marks worldwide for its handling of the coronavirus. We will also discuss the unique set of challenges facing Taiwan. The island is the only surviving democratic entity in greater China after Hong Kong's partial democracy was dismantled by Beijing before the eyes of the world last year. Now a kind of Cold War history is repeating itself as Taiwan is becoming a haven for people fleeing Chinese Communist Party repression in Hong Kong. At the same time, Taiwan is a target of immense pressure from Beijing which wants to control the island and its 23 million people under the one country, two systems formula it offered Hong Kong 25 years ago and has now violated yu Yufun in Chinese. Nadia will tell us how the people of Taiwan are coping with this pressure or ignoring it. Thank you, Nadia, for making time for us in a busy part of your day.
3: Oh, I'm glad to be here to share my traveling experience since there's not many people traveling anymore.
1: Yeah, I was surprised to hear that you had uh, gone all the way back to Taiwan. But uh, what are your friends in Taiwan talking about and your associates? I assume you ran into some of your old journalistic friends, and uh, what were they talking about?
3: Uh, I went to to see some journalist friends, but also people working for the government. The subjects are related to the U.S. First, they want to know what happened in the U.S., why the pandemic uh, was not under control. Did I feel... Afraid to live in the U.S. You know when the uh, vaccine will be available to a lot of people. Yeah, another subject is about the lifting of the restriction of uh, pork uh, with rectopamy to Taiwan. The I think it's a very controversial issue. As you know, p- Taiwan politics very well. You know, both party has been fighting for this issue and lots of my friends were talking about it i heard ordinary people complaining that you know they are forced to eat pork now with the meat and i i just discovered many store selling meat products uh, started to put out a sign saying we only use local pork product and another issue i think people discuss most is that whether uh, President Biden will follow uh, President Trump's footprint, especially on the U.S. policy on Taiwan, because Trump administration was broadly seen as a pro-Taiwan government. Even though not everyone will agree, but some of their policies are are very popular in Taiwan.
1: Like most people based in the United States, you spent nearly a year tied down at home and unable to do a lot of simple tasks, let alone enjoy a life out in restaurants and normal cultural life. But in Taiwan you could enjoy all of those. What was that like?
3: Yeah, I I was required to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks and then, you know, stay home for another week. After that, basically you're you're totally free to do anything you want, only you have to wear a mask. So it's like a fresh air, you know, for me. So all the famous restaurants, um, they are fully booked. You don't really see, you know, the pandemic actually hurt the economic if you go to restaurants. But other people tell me, yes, some some of the industry, like the uh, airlines or some of the tourist industry, but the local tourists are booming because, you know, a lot of people, they still want to spend money for their leisure time but there is no chance they can travel a long distance. So they just decided to tour around in the island.
1: When I ask you what your friends were talking about, and they were talking about pork and coronavirus, when the world news, as we perceive it, everyone's talking about Hong Kong or they're talking about China. So you traveled to Taiwan right after a year in which every part of the so-called one country, two systems just unraveled under heavy pressure from Beijing. China, from its point of view, thinks that this one country, two systems plan is the perfect way to lure Taiwan back to the motherland. But what do the people of Taiwan think about that? What did they think about it before this Hong Kong meltdown, and what do they think now?
3: Well, when you watch the talk show in Taiwan, which is very famous, and uh, there's a lot of discussion about uh, the cross-strait relations and you know the debate of one country in Hong Kong. But I think in the ordinary people's life, it was not, you know, the topic or subject um, people would spend too much time on. Because Taiwan has been under the military threat uh, of PRC for decades. You know, people are used to that. I believe my friend who worked for the military can feel the pressure or the people in the government, but for the people, you know, just ordinary people, they know the presence, they know the military threat. But on the daily life, there's a very limited impact. And uh, you know, Chinese information or uh, TV show, because of the internet, I think people are just they are just accessible to ordinary people. So you can see people still watching the uh, Chinese drama, or even my niece, the young niece, she's watching, you know, Chinese cartoon. So it's a kind of a ironic thing. On the one hand, you know, there is a threat, uh, which is very real. But on the other hand, on the cultural side and the economic side, there's still a lot of interaction.
1: I'm glad that's going on because I wasn't, uh, I knew it wasn't a Cold War situation because there's very pragmatic business dealings. There are more than a million Taiwanese businessmen and students living on the mainland. That's interesting. It's, it's the high politics that are so... Rigid and you know, right?
3: Yeah, I think the elite maybe think deeper. You know, now they, they feel like the uh, unification could be a challenging, but I think most people don't feel that way. This time, when I talk with my friend, I think a lot of them notice the presence of more Hong Kong people are showing up in Taiwan. When my friend talked about it, first they noticed is the uh, rising price of the real estate because Hong Kong people came to mm-hmm. buy houses. They noticed that in some cities, there are more Hong Kong people buying houses and become a community by Hong Kong people. And I talked to a few Hong Kongers who immigrant or work there uh, with a gold card. That's one of the policies that the, the current Taiwanese government offers to the um, experts or people with some specialty. They can come to Taiwan for three years with a gold card. I think a lot of Hong Kong people, they are still having to work out of the trauma of what happened in Hong Kong. And even though they are physically in Taiwan, they're still trying to figure out what they can do or can they start a new life. So I would say, you know, they're still in the process of settling down. It's not easy.
1: No, indeed. At the very least, they're jumping several language barriers. If maybe younger generations of uh, Hong Kongers have decent Mandarin. The other thing is that a lot of younger people in Taiwan prefer the local dialect themselves, don't they? It's...
3: So for uh, for the Hong Kong, yeah, they have, I think the, the people I encounter, they work in, Either for the media or for the culture industry, so lots of them can speak Mandarin, um, but I'm not sure it. I'm not sure it's a very common uh, phenomenon. So for them, they they do have to adapt to the different, you know, language backgrounds, and also some of them already established in Hong Kong. So to start a new life in the middle of your life, you know, middle age. It's not easy. Right now, I don't think the uh, current immigration law is good enough of, to accommodate the Hong Kong people who want to immigrate or, or try to adapt it to Taiwan. Um, there are more that the Taiwanese government can do to help them. Hong Kong offers a lot of people with expertise or intelligence, well-educated people. Yeah, they should be an essence.
1: Yeah, certainly the intellectual, the cultural people, but also the finance people. They could actually add value, considerable value, to uh, Taiwan and range. And
3: I understand there are some, uh, you know, national security concern, and the party, you know, both party have concern about the impact on the local politics as well. But I think this is a great opportunity.
1: One thing I wanted to ask before we close out, and uh, it's something we've reported on more than once, is that the Chinese. Uh, I don't know, United Front type organizations or those even individual actors are pushing a lot of fake news out on Taiwanese media, not just a normal trolling and the kind of stuff that people do individually, but like the systematic 50 cent. Is that a big thing in, in, in reality, as far as you know? Do you witness it? Do you, Is it easy to avoid if you're navigating a website in Taiwan?
3: I would say, you know, it has been going on for a long time. You can see that on um, Taiwan people like to use Lime, you know, as the social media to communicate. And a lot of the information circulated in line came from WeChat or from TikTok. Uh, but uh, Taiwan, I think, has learned from its lessons. So the government and some um, private organizations, they also have this fact-checked center. You know, If they discover there is a fake news or even deep fake news, the government will respond quickly, or the private organization, they will post on their social media platform. I think, for example, this pandemic, the government just learned, you know, they have to deliver consistent, authoritative information every day by a daily press briefing, so there won't be false or fake news circulated. And I think it helped. The transparency helped to build the trust it's a citizen, you know, to have the trust to own the government.
1: That sounds like a key factor. But I also, because I've lived in a combination of Taiwan, China, Japan, and Korea, and in most of those places, even people with a cold will be wearing a mask. And this is years ago. Yeah. When I first thought it was odd when I first saw it. <laughs> I thought, well, I didn't think it was odd. What I thought was that person must be seriously ill. And then I asked, and they said, oh no, when you have a cold, you just keep it to yourself. And that cultural touch, if you will, that sort of benevolence towards your fellow man, key, and it's missing in a lot of places, it seems.
3: Yeah, so that's why it's not very difficult to persuade the Taiwan people to wear a mask, because it has been in you know, like embedded in a culture. Yeah, you're interesting to see they become an accessory for a lady who want to wear that for fashion re- fashionable reasons.
1: Well, again, Nadia, thank you for your time and good luck in the remaining parts of 2021. Hope that the United States can catch up to Taiwan in terms of normal living again.
3: Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you, Poi, in the office. It's really nice to chat with you.
0: Thanks, Paul and Nadia. It was great to get Nadia's taking of The Pulse in Taiwan. Sounds like she had a good time. You know, I came away with the sense that Taiwanese are not as intimidated by the mainland as outsiders like me would imagine. Yeah, you know, at first I was
1: surprised, but I lived in South Korea, 30 miles from the border with North Korea, during various nuclear crises a decade or so ago. And those people also shrug off as sort of a point of the compass or a fact of life. and. Nadia herself said that people have lived
0: under this military threat more or less for 70 years. Okay, I guess they're very familiar with the challenges. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are on platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. I'm with Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.